Hi there, and welcome to the No Ordinary People podcast, where we honor the stories of strangers and learn what people really wish others understood about them. My name is April Coleman, and I'm the host of this podcast, and this is episode five. Today, my guest is my good friend, Jamie Corbin. Jamie is an educator and a storyteller who's been navigating whiteness and non-whiteness her entire life, thanks to her own interracial adoption at birth and her interracial marriage to her best friend, Kelvin, in 2011. She's raising her three beautiful Afro-Latina daughters to change the world with love by first loving themselves deeply and then sharing that love generously with others. She's passionate about using stories to build connection and empathy with others and supporting people as they learn to become better allies for one another. Jamie and I talk about many topics, including her own adoption, growing up in and raising her own multiracial family. We talk about her racial identity and how that's grown and changed over time. She shares her heart for helping people grow in allyship. And we talk about privilege, what it's looked like for us and what it's not. This is an especially great episode for anyone who's wondered about privilege. If you've heard the word and wondered what it really means, you've wondered if it exists in your own life. I especially wanna encourage you to give this episode a listen if you're someone who's heard the word privilege and has pushed back on it, who's asserted that there's no privilege in your life. Jamie is especially vulnerable in sharing her own personal story. I'm so grateful for her time, her openness, and her graciousness. Let's get to the show. Hi, Jamie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, April. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this because I know your day-to-day life is a little bit hectic. You somehow are managing to homeschool six children. I know you have three. So <laughs> how did that happen? How's, yeah, how are you um, homeschooling you know, six kids? <laughs> homeschooling six kids, how did that happen? I ask myself that almost five <laughs> times a day. <laughs> Um, I do have to claim full responsibility for three of them. I've got three girls and then my little sister, she also has three girls and we just decided, you know, with everything that 2020 was looking like by the time it was time to send kids off to school in the fall, we thought our family needed flexibility and I am an educator. Like that was my job, my life before children. I had a classroom and we just decided that's what we needed to do this year. It's been challenging, but the kids have handled it really well. They're hardworking and I mean, this is not to say that it's been easy. It's been a hot mess, but it is where we're at and we're almost done. What are the age ranges of the kids? Okay. So my youngest just turned three in March and my sister's oldest is turning 14 next week. And the two kind of in the middle, my oldest and her youngest, they're just seven weeks apart. They share the same middle name so that we call them the twins. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got a little bit of a range there. Yeah, it's a big range. And you know what, for the most part, they do really, really well with it. The youngest on my sister's side loves to be a big sister. And the teenager and her sister Zoe, who's 11, they're very helpful, Mm -hmm. very helpful with the little kids. So we've made it work. So is this something you're going to continue doing? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the first family to have re-enrollment paperwork back to the public school offices when it was available in January. So yes. You're, so, you're excited all 2021. It's good to know. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how um, homeschooling moms do it. You, they're superheroes because it's not the ideal situation for our family. That's for sure. I don't think anyone, any parent got it easy this year as it relates to school, right. mm-hmm. regardless of what situation it is. 
but I can for sure say homeschooling is not for us. You know, I say that those of us who were homeschooling before the pandemic actually did have it a little bit easier, at least by my estimation, based on what I watched my friends with kids in school going through this last year and how hectic that was. This was just our normal life. There was that meme that went around for a while. It's like when you find out that quarantine is you know, just how you live your normal life. And that was kind of how we definitely went out and did a lot of social things, but we're used to having the kids home all day, every day. So I think it was way harder for those of you who brought your kids home, you know, temporarily or for the year and trying to make that decision of what do we do? You know, it's funny because I never thought I would be a wife or a mom or a teacher for that matter. And (laughs) when I realized Kelvin always tells me that I'm like the queen of epic fails like that, um, or he teases me and says, nailing it. (laughs) Um, But when we decided we were going to have kids, it just made sense to me since I had already decided to be a teacher that we were going to homeschool. That just was like an assumed thing that we were going to do. And a year before Simone would be going into kindergarten, uh, I felt very clearly called to the Lord by the Lord that we were going to put the kids in public school. Like that's what we were supposed to do. So it was an emotional two days where I like, didn't talk. I was just like speechless and cried a lot (laughs) because I would have picked where we lived differently (laughs) had Mm. I known this. Yeah. Um, But then I feel like it was such a hullabaloo because she only was in for half the year before COVID started perpetual summer break. And I'm excited to see what life will be like with two kids in school. I think it will be fun. Yeah. You've mentioned a little bit about your family, but Tell us about the people that live with you. Tell us about your family. Okay. So there's me and my husband. We met in college in 2003. Um, And then our three girls, Simone, Nora, and Maya, they're about two years apart, each of them. And we really prayed that they would get like even tempered personalities like their father. And we just were zero for three on that. So it is a lot (laughs) of emotion and a lot of passion. Uh, And and Kelvin is a strong man to be able to, to handle all that on a daily basis. And then, yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, my sister and her three girls used to live with us for a short time. Um, they're not living with us per se now, but I do take care of her girls while she works her nine to five each day during the work week. And my mom helps with that in the afternoons. They live, uh, we call it three dysfunctional miles down the road. My sister always <laughs> asks me when we're going to cut the umbilical cord. Uh, which is funny for a lot of reasons. One, because I'm turning 36 next month and I don't see it happening anytime soon. And two, because I was adopted. Um, So there really wasn't that connection. (laughs) But I couldn't function without my parents. Uh, They're three miles down the road and they take all six girls um, every afternoon during the week. So that's how we're surviving. We're spreading, we're spreading it out. Yeah, that's good. Good to hear. And so you, you mentioned your parents, you mentioned that you're adopted. Tell me a little bit before we jump into this conversation, give it some context. What is your racial background? Yeah, that's like the million dollar question that I'm (laughs) starting to figure out now that I'm turning 36. Um, Okay. So, I mean, I've been working on my website. My oldest niece has been hanging out with me, learning some web design stuff. And she's been looking at the stuff I've been writing and trying to play the fraction game. So the fraction game works like this. I'm three fourths Mexican American, one fourth Irish, 100% raised by the whitest people you could find in Idaho, bless their hearts, they are the best, but they adopted. So in the eighties when I was adopted, and I don't know if this is still true now, I'm really hoping it's not. I feel like that's a naive thing to say. My parents were definitely raised in a racist time period where colorblindness was a positive step in the right direction. Right. 
so for them, they had a biological son who passed away when he was seven from mm-hmm. cystic fibrosis and mm-hmm. they were both genetic carriers. So biological children were not, was not really a choice for them. They still wanted a family and they wanted a family badly. So to speed up the adoption process, they didn't check the white babies only box. I'm, I don't know if that's an actual box. I've never actually looked at an application. From my understanding, you are more likely to get a baby if you are not looking for a white baby. And my parents, like I said, and I say this with a lot of grace, I don't like colorblindness, but I do recognize that for them, colorblindness was a really big step forward from where they were raised. So they, they adopted two Mexican-American girls and in their colorblindness chose to give me a boy's Spanish name. Jaime is a boy's name in Spanish. Um, So So that is kind of my racial identity in terms of the nitty gritty specifics. I was very much raised middle-class, tons of privilege. My sister and I, we don't speak another language fluently or fluently at all. Like we don't speak another language besides English. My Spanish is purely learned academic in the classroom, used sparingly because it's embarrassing. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) but at the same time, we grew up knowing we were different. My sister, more than myself, I'm very light-skinned unless I'm out in the summer uh, turning brown, Um, but my sister is very dark. So we grew up asking, I know we asked my parents multiple times, like, what are we? And they'd be like, well, you're a human being and that's really all that matters. And then Mm. I didn't know until years later that my sister was being harassed by students at our school because of her brown skin Um, And I was always very perplexed by people who would come up to me when I was a teenager and speak Spanish because I was white as far as I was concerned. And I do have a memory of being younger. Um, I mentioned that my skin color changes with the seasons, Um, Mm -hmm. met my husband at the end of summer season. So he has always said that it was false advertising because I was very brown (laughs) after tanning for senior prom and getting through a summer. But I remember one summer being up in Northern Idaho old enough that my parents felt comfortable, probably ignorantly given the context. I don't know that I would let my kids do this in Northern Idaho, but to take the elevator down in the hotel room by ourselves to go swimming. So we were old, like we weren't like little kids. We were old enough to do that. There was a skinhead, someone from the Aryan nations in the elevator. And I didn't understand it until I was later. I didn't understand that what I was feeling at the time, but my skin was crawling and I felt very scared Mm -hmm. and very ashamed. And I didn't know why. Um, Obviously I get that now. So that's an instance that I think of that I remember like, oh, I'm not white. You know, I guess those moments of people coming up and speaking to me in Spanish, I would say they didn't think I was white. (laughs) Um, Right. But then being in a family where I'm the mom of three Afro-Latina girls and the wife of a black man, I I very much am white. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, Latino and Hispanic people, those terms, I don't know if you know this or not, Hispanic is actually a name that the American government gave to people from Latin American countries who speak Spanish, which I don't, I don't speak Spanish well enough to be labeled as a Hispanic, I don't think, I wish I did. (laughs) And Latino culture, I was missing as a kid, but we still have to mark, there's no box for Latino as a racial identity. And I think it's because there's such a mix of African, indigenous and European genetics in our genetic makeups. My Latina friends always talk about having a baby as playing the genetic lottery. Like families get overly excited when the babies have lighter toned skin. Hmm. Um, And you just don't know, you just don't know what you're going to get. So I check the box as a white person on the census. I say that I'm Hispanic, even though, I mean, I think that's a stretch. My Spanish is not that great. I absolutely 100% identify as a Latina, 
but in some spaces I am absolutely the white girl. <laughs> yeah. My girls love to point that out. In fact, I was listening to, um, my husband was doing a kind of like a diversity training for a men's group at a local church. And I was watching the replay of it. And he referred to me as his white wife. And I asked him about it. And he's like, does that bother you? And I said, no, it's perfect. Cause it's exactly what April and I are going to be talking about. <laughs> and Yeah. Yeah, that how much context matters and how much you represent, you know, and identify with your Latina heritage, but we're not raised in mm-hmm. that culture at all. So as an adult, have you sought that out at all to learn more about your Mexican American heritage and the culture that you didn't get as a kid? Oh yeah, for sure. So I was 16 when a really close friend of mine at school I had moved. We were working together and she's like, she started talking to me in Spanish. I was like, why are you speaking to me in Spanish? And she's like, uh, because you're Mexican, duh. And I said, no, I'm not. And she was so confused. And I explained it to her and she goes, oh, honey, you need to go talk to your parents. You're definitely Mexican. <laughs> and, and so that from that point on, I, I, you know, my parents, we dug out our paperwork and we learned a really hard lesson about colorblindness. I think from that point on, hmm something that our family has been, you don't just learn about it and then it's done, right? You just like learn about it and learn about it and learn about it. So yeah, we talked and then I went to college and I worked really hard to learn academically, but also in different student organizations. I was really curious about what it meant to be Latina because in Idaho, Latina means usually Mexican-American, usually the kind of Mexican- Mexican-Americans that work in agricultural industries with the darker skin and darker hair and darker eyes. I remember really wanting brown eyes in high school once I found out I was Mexican because my eyes are bright blue. And my best friend at the time, who's also um, multiracial, he's black and white. He told me he wouldn't be my friend anymore if I got brown contacts. So that that stopped that. But <laughs> I was really curious about what does it mean to be Latina? And I was really pleasantly surprised and also very confused to come to find out that Latinas speak more languages than just Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. And they are in a, an entire, what is that, pant, Pantone? They're in a whole wide rainbow of colors of skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come from diverse cultures and religious backgrounds and food customs and it's really interesting that we've grouped all of South and Central America into like one cultural category <laughs> as Latinos because right. it's very diverse. Right. So yeah, that, that I for sure have tried to find. I took, I, <laughs> there weren't a lot of Mexican Americans uh, at college. Most of my girlfriends were Puerto Rican. So we have a good laugh about that. Like I definitely know more about Puerto Rican culture than I do Mexican American culture Yeah, um, for better or worse. How old were you when you were adopted? Uh, three days. Oh, okay. So you were definitely an infant and you, yeah, that's all you've known. You always knew you were adopted? Um, I did from the earliest I can remember. My okay. adoption was closed. My younger sister's adoption was open. And after that mandatory year of pictures and letters, um, her biological grandmother and biological mother decided that they would like their baby back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So at that point, my parents had really strong conversations with me about, I mean, this is like the eighties, right? So I'm thinking like face on the milk carton type stuff. Right. Right. It was don't ever talk to strangers and also don't ever let go of your sister's hand. And also don't ever stop looking at like watching your sister. And I was three at the time. So really I can trace my overbearing, super controlling 
relationship with my sister back to when I was three. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd be scary to hear when you're three. Yeah. Oh, so, gosh. For most of my life. Yeah. So it's interesting. You known the whole time that you were adopted, but you didn't know you were Mexican. What were the feelings surrounding finding that out? And were there any emotions towards your parents? You've, you've mentioned like they thought being colorblind was a good thing. Yeah. But how did you process finding that out? And what were the emotions surrounding that? Well, it was really hard because I knew that some of my extended family was racist. Hmm. Um, and I just knew that that was a part because my parents, with all the best intentions, tried really hard to raise my sister and I to also be colorblind, thinking they were doing the right thing. Right. Right. Um, and so in that, we heard stories of racist relatives and how wrong that was. And so then to realize that that was a thing <laughs> and that that had probably impacted how they saw us. That was hard. Mm. There was, <laughs> there was a lot of anger until I got, you know, grew up a bit and realized that they were doing the best they could with what they had. But yeah, I felt very cheated out of a language and a cultural experience. And I don't know how much of that is that adopted kids in general feel cheated out of what they build in their minds to be an idealized family sure. when obviously all families are hot messes right. and anyone acting otherwise is lying. <laughs> Agreed. That. Yep. That's right. So I don't know how much of that had to do with the fact that I felt that I had been kind of taken out of a culture and kind of whitewashed in my understanding of things or how much of that I would have felt anyways, just being a child of adoption. I don't know. Hmm. So how does that work with your family now? You are a Latina Irish woman <laughs> married to a black man or raising biracial children or multiracial children. Um, <laughs> what does that look like with your parents? How has that changed over time? Yeah. Wow. So every lesson that we've learned has been learned the hard way, like through really hard conversations. Um, and it's hard because this type of stuff, this talking about diversity and inclusion and racial justice, it's emotionally charged and you care about the people that you're hurting and you're not always like, if you love them, you're never hurting intentionally, right? It's never the intention to hurt, but yet that doesn't take away the sting of when things do hurt. Right. So I have this memory of coming back from college, my freshman year, having known for a couple of years now that we were Mexican American. I think, I don't think my sister was very surprised because, you know, she was Brown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why she never told me maybe because we were being raised to be colorblind that she was being so harassed, but it had been a few years that we were wrestling with this and my parents were trying to sell a house and they've bought and sold houses their whole marriage. Um, so it wasn't like a, a new thing to them, but they, and they had their own business. They're very business minded. So they were just trying to get through the deal. And I remember standing in the living room with my sister, it's summertime. We're both very Brown. And the guy looking at the house tells my parents, yeah, I've just got to get out of Las Vegas because it just gets worse and worse. I mean, how many fireworks can the Mexicans buy with, with food stamps? Oh my gosh. And my sister and I kind of looked at each other and we looked at my parents and I share this story only to say like, this is a painful story, right? It's painful for them. It's painful for us. They didn't say anything about it. Hmm. I think because they didn't know what to say and right. they, because no one had taught them, right? Because if you don't have the skills to engage in these conversations, you don't have the skills. And so they were painfully absent from that conversation. And you know how I am <laughs> as an eight on the Enneagram. Yep. 
<laughs> I've had to talk myself out from blowing that house up after that guy moved in many times. Right. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. It was, we were hurt. Uh, my parents were then hurt that we were hurt because they knew they felt incredibly guilty. You can't go back and redo a conversation like that. Hmm. Um, so these are the kind of the lessons. They're way more engaged now. Marrying Kelvin was a great, a great thing for our full, whole family, opened our eyes up to a lot of different things. My parents had lots of questions. And so we've been married for 10 years. And I don't know, I would say the last couple of years, they've been even more aware of how to handle these conversations. They've gone from asking him questions and hoping he would teach them to really taking it upon themselves to seek out answers first and then engage in conversation with him, if that makes sense, instead of just having him be the teacher all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, when we had the granddaughters for them, that changed everything. Right. I mean, I think that's just the nature of becoming a grandparent. I remember a couple summers ago, we were up at the family cabin and my oldest daughter got a mosquito bite and we were heading back down to Boise. And my mom just was really fussing over my oldest child having a mosquito bite, making sure I went inside and got her some Benadryl beforehand. And I had to look at her and I said, mom, do you know how many mosquito bites I got as a child? And I guarantee (laughs) you did not care about any of them. It's a mosquito bite. (laughs) And she uh, laughed and it's just, you know, that's a part of being a grandparent. Now they have two Latina daughters who are adults that they, they wish they had known different things about our adoption when they were mm-hmm. raising us. And they have three granddaughters who are black. And so they're very, they're engaged. They're very woke for being white grandparents in Idaho. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Yeah, I was listening to Dak Shepard. He was interviewing Daniel Goleman and he was saying that there's this latent gene that only activates when you become a grandparent. Totally. <laughs> they just yes. turn into different people. <laughs> yes. And I think there's some genes that turn completely off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There must be. That's funny. You know, I say, tell me about your racial identity. You say that's complicated. Where are you now? You know, how do you answer that question? How does the context of where you are change that identity for you? We tend to think of racial identity or identity in general as very fixed. We are who Mm -hmm. we are. Yeah. But, you know, more than once in conversations, you've shared, like, it looks different for you. It's a very white presenting Latina woman raising black daughters married to a black man. There's all these components to it for you. Oh, man, this has changed a lot, even just in the last year for our family. So racial tensions, I'm not going to say hit an all-time high, but definitely got some attention last year <laughs> a little bit in the general public. I think that would be a fair statement to say. Yep. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I don't know what the official name of that is called. I, I jokingly call it the instigator. <laughs> I know that's not what it's called though, but I've heard someone refer to it as the defender. Like we don't mind conflict. We actually quite enjoy it, especially <laughs> if it's, if it's to defend someone that we feel is voiceless or doesn't have the power, like kind of like cheering for the underdog. So I for sure have engaged in more conversations surrounding race this last year. And what started out as kind of an indignant, I don't want to say angry, but maybe angry, like more Why don't you want to say angry? Why don't I want to say angry? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's a good question too. Uh, I guess I'm angry at the situation, but not necessarily the people like I don't want to say angry because I, it's really important for me to be approachable for people, Hmm. 
but at the same time, it was really hard to not be angered by what was going on, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So I think that's yeah. why I don't want to be angry. I want to be approachable. And it's hard to approach someone that you feel is angry towards you because of the skin color that you didn't ask to be born with. And the, the dialogue is already so muddied by people who are bad actors trying to muddy the dialogue mm. that I try very hard to not make it worse. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely felt like I entered into conversations after George Floyd was killed, kind of with this mentality of, okay, people, white people, parenthetical white people, it has taken you long enough to want to get engaged on this. We have been crying about this forever. <laughs> Trayvon Martin was killed years ago and, and not a peep. Right. And so I entered the the summer at with that kind of mentality. And we've jokingly in private conversations, I think with our book club that we've done, we've commented before about how there's some people that you that Kelvin and I will never be able to reach. And it really has to be the white people taking care of their people and, and teaching them to do better. And I remember the last time I said that I said, white people get your people. I felt something inside of me say, Hey, babe, those are your people too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm calling it my Jonah moment. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Um, And since then, so that was what, when we're, that was like in January, maybe when we were doing how to fight racism. Yeah. And so since then I have reluctantly, but responsibly following this voice that I know was a prompting from the Holy spirit that there are not a lot of people out there that traipse back and forth between whiteness and non-whiteness who have navigated those spaces their whole life, whose racial identity changes based on the context that can have a message heard by both sides. So what that looks like for me now is I'm going about my writing life and my educational career and my small business side, and I'm leaning all in towards allyship advocacy. Mm -hmm. helping people learn what my family has learned the hard way, which is how to show up for people you love that are people of color when you're not. Yeah, that's very important. I would say right now, it's something that we need. I hear a lot of questions being asked, you know, what do we do? How Mm -hmm. do we do this? And I think what's really important too, is that you as a person of color, white presenting or not, you do have this unique position to speak to multiple groups. And I don't want to write that book. Do you know what I mean? Where where I've been walking this journey. And I think there's some value to sharing just my experience, but I want to elevate your voice and the voice of other people of color say, you know, how do we come alongside you and help better love you and fight for justice rather than more white people speaking into that noise? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that, you know, leave it to Jesus to turn something that you've struggled with your whole life, that is probably more of a lie than it was truth, and flip it upside down on its head and ask you to press into it. So I have always felt like I will never belong anywhere. Mm. (laughs) Like, like, it's kind of like when you take a wild animal out of the wild and like, teach them how to be domesticated and then send them out into the wilderness. Like I can't go be 100% Latina ever. Like I'm never, ever going to be able to do that. My Spanish will always sound like it has an accent because I'll always be self-conscious about it, you know? Right. So I I've always felt like I don't have a place where I belong because I also don't belong. I mean, we didn't invite half of my extended family to our wedding. I don't belong there either. Right. And even in my own household where I do all the dishes and laundry with my family and like, it should be where I belong the most. And it is, I'm still other. Right. So I'm starting to believe that <laughs> I call this like my, my, um, is it Ruth? No, it's not Ruth. Gosh, Esther, 
Esther, thank you. I don't know what you're going to say. I'm just going to throw out it's some other kind of like females I, I, in the I, Bible. I feel like I've had a Jonah moment in which God is calling me to go work with people who I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily be super enthusiastic to work with. Right. Um, and that's simply because it's exhausting work. That's not because the people, I'm not saying all white people are exhausting or all white people are difficult to work with, but it's really hard to have these conversations that comes with like an emotional wear and tear when you're explaining over and over again things that are just simply known to you if that makes sense so that's why I say absolutely even if they're coming to the table with good intentions and truly wanting to learn it must be exhausting for you Mm -hmm. to have to like you said make obvious what's intrinsic to you yes so I feel like God's told me you need to go and I'm saying great Okay, I'll go. No, but I really am. I'm with the enthusiasm of Jonah. Yeah, but then I also find hope in Esther, which is, you know, maybe I lived 35 years of my life feeling like I don't belong. Mm -hmm. So that when 36 rolls around, I can say, actually, there's very few people that are standing where I'm standing that can speak where I can speak in an authentic way and be heard. Because I think we have an epidemic of bad ears in this world today. People are not able to listen. And that's that's fundamental. It's foundational in being an ally. So yeah, that's so true. I think that what you're voicing too, about feeling like you don't belong, it'd be really easy for someone like me to say, no, that just means you belong in all these spaces, right? How Mm -hmm. great for you that you have multiple spaces, but what you're saying, I've heard echoed before by other people of color. Trevor Noah talks about in his book that he didn't fit anywhere and is born a crime, you know, born a biracial child under apartheid and have you read the absolutely true story of a part-time Indian by Sherman Alexie? He mentions that too, He where he goes to the white, in quotes, school to get a, a better education, but he lives on the reservation and he doesn't belong either place. Yeah. So it's easy for me as a white mainstream culture woman to be like, no, how great. You've got both. You've got all of the above. But in reality, the way that it plays out is you actually feel very othered everywhere you go. Yes. Yeah. I would say that is, those are really good words to put around that situation. It reminds me a lot of trying to explain to people that there's grief in adoption. Mm. This idea that there's loss to be processed alongside, yes, the happiness of parents wanting a baby, getting a baby who needs parents. That's absolutely a hard, a happy thing, but it's absolutely a hard thing as well. Mm. Yeah. That's born out of brokenness in some Mm -hmm. way. Absolutely. Yeah. How has that played a part in your story? How is the trauma that is attached to every adoption, do you think, influenced? I know I didn't prepare you for this question. So. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so you're like, oh my gosh, like, we're going well, there. How many days do you have to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> I know. It might not be, this might be another episode yeah. to talk yeah. about. But- I mean, I can tell you briefly, like how it's impacted me. I'm always happy to talk about God's role in my life, but long story short in the eighties, we didn't know about attachment disorder. Right. We didn't know, we didn't have the gene mapped. We weren't doing very great brain science at the time. Sure. So we didn't know how attachment functioned with brain and the brain is amazing. God made brains to be so, so amazing. Um, So I grew up with reactive attachment disorder, which means that Usually when parents have babies, they bond to their babies and the baby bonds back to them. And that's how we're designed to function. And that covers all sorts of, you know, that kind of relational, it's like a 
safety net for the tightrope of parenting and raising up these children who eat all our food and make all the messes and don't do any of the cleaning. Right. It's a good thing. They're cute. Right. Um, but I didn't have that with my parents. So I would, we'd hit a typical parenting child relationship hiccup. And for what most people would just like recover and it would be fine. There was no safety net there for me. I mean, it looked a lot of different ways, but essentially my brain was wired all funky. I couldn't connect with people. So I was always trying to hustle for my sense of belonging. And that was not something that my parents put on me in any way, shape or form. And I think that they sensed that something was off with me, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't have words for it. So what happened was I grew up and got married and realized I had attachment disorder and that I struggled to nurture relationships. And that if I wasn't physically present with people, I kind of like cut them out of my life. I really have always had a sense of like, my parents hate it when I use this word, but like being a thrift store baby, (laughs) but just that no one has ever wanted me. No one has ever chosen. I've never been anyone's first choice until I met my husband, which I mean, if I can only be anyone's first choice, it would for sure be him. He's the best. But with that comes just like all sorts of struggles and relationships and shame and, and not knowing how to tell what a good relationship is and a a dangerous relationship is because there was no sense of boundaries. And when I became pregnant, I got really scared about not being able to attach to my own children. Mm-hmm. That's a really common thing. And the research suggests that healthy attachment would be a really challenging thing to accomplish with my girls. Um, and so every decision I made during pregnancy and their first few years was all about how do I maximize the possibility of having healthy attachment. Happy ending to the story. There's zero issue with attachment with me and my kids. And it's all a God thing and a great husband thing. It's very much impacted me in that I had to learn as an adult about everything I know from connection from a counselor and Brene Brown. (laughs) Those are good places. (laughs) Yeah, they're great places. And so now I've become like this people who have only known me since I've been a mom or only known me since I became a follower of Jesus have a really hard time reconciling when I talk about my past and who Mm. I was and what I was like. Kelvin has no hard time remembering because he knew me then. Um, But I've just kind of become a champion for connection and I work really hard at it. I work really hard to be nice, (laughs) which is not really fun to admit, but it's coming more and more natural. But people are like, oh, you're so sweet and you're so nice. And I'm like, I have to try so much harder than most people to not just completely disengage, dismiss, and not care. And I have to work really hard to nurture relationships and it's worth it. It's 100% worth it. And we live in a world that is more and more disconnected. I feel like for lots of different reasons across all sorts of platforms. And it's kind of like my driving force connection and love and grace. That's my life's work right now. Mm, it's good work. So your racial identity and kind of being this chameleon we talked about has lots of disadvantages. One of the things that you mentioned um, as we were preparing to record this episode was you kind of had to go on a journey to discover your own privilege. We use that word privilege a lot. So maybe you can, before we dive into your personal experience of discovering privilege, what do you mean by privilege when you're talking about that? Yeah. Wow. Privilege is a loaded term (laughs) and I get that. Right. Um, So for the people who didn't just turn us off. Right. <laughs> right now, because we said the word. What, it, what do you, you know? It, and this is something that I've learned in my own family, too. And like I said, everything I've learned about allyship and choosing to live life this way, it's been hard conversations, hard earned knowledge. So 
my father especially was raised very rural poor in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so it's often from that kind of demographic that I have experienced a lot of pushback. And I grew up in the mountains with a lot of rural poor in central Idaho. So it's a lot of that demographic that I get pushback about like, well, I don't understand. I don't have white privilege. I grew up poor. Nothing's ever been given to me. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I absolutely 100%, I get that argument. Um, and that's a whole separate conversation about economic privilege that people would for sure turn off the podcast if we dove into that. But, <laughs> but I even had to remove some family relationships about this once I had our girls. And it was just very clear that I had family members in my extended family that would not be safe places for my daughters to get feedback about who they were and what was real and what was not real. So when I enter into a conversation about privilege, it's not with a lightheartedness and it's not without understanding where these arguments are coming from, but it is 100% with the desire for people to understand that privilege really has less to do about what was given to you because of your skin color and more about what was given to you that you were not even aware of had to do with skin color. Mm. Privilege is... I don't even know how to put really good words to it. I guess I'll just give you a couple of stories of how my white privilege has like punched me in the stomach and made me sick. And these stories I I haven't been able to tell until recently, like the last couple of years, because even though they happened in the spring summertime of 2006, so what that's 15 years ago, they impacted me so deeply and shook me so hard that it has been embarrassing to tell these stories, Mm. especially to my, to my friends of color. Um, But I'll tell them. Okay. So I went to Miami University of Ohio for undergraduate it's 10 minutes outside of the Indiana border and there's an active Ku Klux Klan community, I guess you could call it, that meets in Indiana, just on the other side of the border. Yeah. And enough, enough of that in Ohio too. In 2004, the big political issue was immigrants. There was, I don't know if you remember, there was quite, quite the media makeup of like how the immigrants were going to ruin all of our lives. So that was the hot topic mm-hmm. issue. And then I think it switched to gay marriage. Anyway, so that was like a huge thing. And so I was a part of a Latina-based multicultural sorority. In fact, I was one of the founding charter members at our university. At the time we were in the student union, there were about maybe 10 to 14 of us. In the student union, we were going to go hang posters for an event that we were putting on. One of my best friends in my sorority, her name is Heather. She is white. She grew up in southeastern Ohio. She was hanging out with us because we were all going to do this together. We're in the student union. And it took me a minute to realize what had happened, but she was shoved very physically into me. And at the same time that she was shoved and I felt her body shoved into me, I saw combat boots walking by and I heard the words race traitor. Up to that point, I had never heard the words race traitor. I was so naive. I didn't even like that now triggers a bunch of stuff in my mind that I understand. At that time, I was like a race, what race? Oh my gosh, a race, a traitor. And I was like, in a matter of seconds, it took me a minute to realize what happened. Mm -hmm. The the clan was in our student union. They were going to march English only signs, um, anti-immigration, all sorts of nonsense. But our campus had, our university had three different campuses and they were at the wrong campus which I mean, make your own conclusions there. (laughs) Uh, So, so by the time I realize what happened, Mm -hmm. I'm in the midst of, I think Heather and I three, four, there might've been four of us that were white. The rest of everyone was very Brown or very black. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Like I said, I'm a defender. That idea of pushing my best friend into me and calling her a race trader because she was hanging out with non-white folk didn't go over well with 19, 20 year old Jamie. So (laughs) I 
took off marching after them. And I had some things I was going to handle with the clan, apparently. Now, if you do not have a lot of experience with the clan, if your family has not been terrorized by the clan, that is probably an amusing story. But my girlfriend pulled me back and she's from Cleveland. And she said, you have lost your mind. I said, no, they've lost their mind, blah, 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 blah. You know, I was heated. And she goes, you don't fight with the clan. Look around you, pay attention. You know, you can't march out there with all of your privilege. When we're in here, people can get hurt. The clan kills people. I wanted to fall on the ground and just cry because it was embarrassing to me that I, in my white privilege, was ready to go take on the freaking clan. Sorry, you probably don't want to say freaking on your podcast. I was ready. That's okay. People have said worse. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) In all of my white privilege, I was ready to go take on the clan. And man, I call that a dangerous amount of white privilege. You know, it was dangerous. It was dangerous for my sorority sisters. It was dangerous for me. It was dangerous for anyone else that might've been on the street while they were out there. But I didn't give it a, like, I wasn't even thinking about that because my privilege was that intense. That summer I went to Chicago and I lived in a housing cooperative. And one of my roommates was an undocumented immigrant who was da- had been dating his longtime girlfriend. Um, they were living in the house for years. So he'd been there for years. I worked in La Villeta and Pilsen, which were Mexican neighborhoods, and we lived just outside of those. And one night we were in Chicago and it was late and we were just getting tacos and we weren't like misbehaving at all. We were really just, we really truly were just being people eating tacos. And this police officer in the vehicle kept circling around and staring us down his, like rolled down his windows and would just stare at us. And by the fourth time that he came around, I like hopped up and like, I was going to go tell this police officer that I thought he was racial profiling, give him a piece of my mind. Mm. And this man's girlfriend very physically grabbed me and shoved me back down. And I got a lecture and I was really upset at the time because I felt like it was very unfair. But then as I listened to her, I realized that my privilege that was coming into play there was as an American citizen. And all it took was one police officer deciding to do more than just drive around four times and stare at us and glare at us, but actually get out and ask some questions. And that could ruin my friend's life. So that is another instance of embarrassing and dangerous white privilege. You know, it's interesting because nothing that you said had to do with money that you have, security that you have. None of that was the privilege that I think comes to people's mind. Like you said, the response being, I've worked hard for everything that I have, which we could talk for hours about that ideology as well and why that's problematic. But how little privilege has to do with money, I think is an important distinction to make that it sometimes does, uh, but there's so many other ways that it shows up. And I know for myself, there's often things that my friends of color will say that they encountered growing up or that they have to consider now as adults that I've never given a thought to ever. Um, I was telling our group, our book club group, the story about the gentleman, black man here in Boise, riding his bike to return library books. And he had his ID on him, you know, because he was stopped by an officer and they asked his ID. And even that, I thought if I was riding my bike to the library, I would not have brought my ID. It would never have occurred to me. But that man knew he could never leave his house without his identification. So that is privilege. And it doesn't mean that I think I'm better It doesn't mean that I asked to be in this position. It just means for me, you know, and what you're saying, becoming aware of our surroundings and how we do have different experiences based on these external factors. 
Yeah, and I would caution anyone who's trying to learn about privilege or listen about privilege to be really mindful and in tune with how their gut and their heart are feeling as they hear these stories. Because there's going to be, just because of the nature of the world that we live in and the sinful human heart, there's going to be a strong pull to try to either dismiss them, these types of stories, um, mm -hmm. explain them away, or recenter them around yourself, even though these stories are not about you. I think that's one of the paradoxes of allyship I'm wrestling with and learning about right now is allyship is 100% not about you as the ally. It is also 100% entirely about you. <laughs> um, and so I'm kind of wrestling with that. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, another thing about white privilege, just with raising our girls, we want them to go to a really great school. And there's really great schools all around the valley. Some of them are diverse and Title I schools. Some of them are well-funded by parent organizations and tend to be less diverse just because of where they're located in the valley. And no one else that has registered their kids to go to school, I'm betting, maybe there's one family, um, but we've been told there isn't, uh, has to go and make an appointment to talk to the principal to say, we need to make sure that you're putting our kids in classrooms where their teachers are going to validate who they are as Black people. Mm-hmm. That's a huge concern. And unfortunately, I think it's a worse concern here in Idaho just because of how Idaho can be. But I'm dreading that conversation. And I'm embarrassed to say that because like, I wanna be an ally and an advocate for my daughters and I will be, but it's just like, man, seriously, we have to have these conversations every day. <laughs> They're in mm -hmm. our life all the time. And that's just representative of my privilege of growing up in a middle-class white culture mm -hmm. that they weren't, you know? And mm -hmm. my daughters and my husband, they don't get to choose. That is just what their life is like. Right. Again, I'm always aware of trying not to center, right? I am a self-professed ally, but trying not to make it about me. I appreciate that that's part of the work that you're working on is, you know, how to walk people like me through this process. But listening to you tell those stories about how you have to advocate for your own children Imagine if we all were thinking that way, you know, how much th that would take that weight off your shoulders that you have to do that is if we just all were advocating for your girls in our Idaho schools or schools across the country, the world. Yeah, that would so, be amazing. Yeah. yeah, so I see that as part of the role of an ally is taking some of that weight off of these parents' shoulders and not just parents with kids in schools, but across the board. We have to be aware of those things. You have to work through the discomfort of it because it's not fun to listen to all the areas you've been blind and the things that you had no idea that people that you love were dealing with. I grew up in an area with more Asian American community than where we currently live. And particularly in the last month, lots of stories have come out from people that I know and love that I grew up around. And I had no idea what they were facing, you know, and that's hard to hear and know that that was happening and I didn't know and they didn't feel safe telling me. So you have to push through that discomfort and learn from it. It's yeah. not easy. Absolutely. And I think what you just said highlights the importance of allyship, not just from a macro level, like we need social change and we need the world to be changed by love, which is so important. And I'm convinced that that won't happen if we leave it up to just people of color because we've taken their power away from them. And also if we leave it up to the government, which is a whole nother podcast, but like I, it won't happen without allies. It won't happen specifically without white allies. It just won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I don't know, people on both sides of the argument might want to come for me on that one and they're welcome to, <laughs> I, I welcome those conversations. Um, but also on a micro level, uh, a lot of people are like, well, we just don't know very many families of color. Well, that's fine. Cause you know, my family <laughs> or, you know, at least one, or you at least see someone of color in your kid's school. Like you can learn to be an ally. And even if you don't feel like you're making a huge difference, I know the book that we're reading right now has me very discouraged <laughs> mm-hmm. of like, how are we going to fix this? But sometimes the positive change is on that more micro level of one-to-one relationships. It would be amazing if we walked into our children's principal's office and said, we need to have this talk. And we understand that your fifth grade program is all about the civil war and that they're singing songs from the Confederacy. And have you thought about adding other things? And if the principal could say to us, actually, yeah, last year we had four white families come in and talk to us about this. And we're thinking that maybe we need to change that up this year. If that happened, man, I would just, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I'd probably be like, well, I can pick a different career because apparently people have got this covered. Yeah. (laughs) But I just don't think that that's what's going to happen. No, but we can work towards it. Right. I I mean, it gives me hope to hear you say something like that and think, I know four white families who would do that, you know, where before I knew none. So I'm grateful to see the growth, but I also don't want to be Pollyanna and, you know, naive about it. (laughs) Like, look how far we've come because then things happen like have happened in legislatures across states in the last month where it feels like we're literally going back into the 1860s. And so for every step forward, we go about a thousand steps back sometimes. Yeah. But I love that that's the work you're doing too, and that that's who you're reaching out to and who you're discipling, you know, into people who are open and willing to be doing this work. And you said something that was really important, I think, to highlight again, is that there are skills involved with this that need to be taught. There are skills on how to engage with this work and how to engage with people. And they're not things that come naturally. A lot of it is based on how we grew up where we grew up, the culture we grew up, and most of the people listening right now grew up in the United States, you know, which, like you said, growing up in the 80s, colorblindness was all the rage, and we thought we were doing the right thing, especially as good Christian, you know, people, we were really being led to believe that not seeing color was really the way to go. And it's not until more recently that we realized how harmful that rhetoric has been. Even listening to your own stories, you're saying, you know, how you learned to kind of identify your own privilege, but you stood in that space and were willing to listen. And these skills that you're talking about require practice. Absolutely. So you kind of mentioned a few things, but what are some other things that you would encourage people who want to grow in their allyship, who want to be able to identify that way, who want to make a difference in their friend groups, neighborhoods, communities, the country, to grow in their own racial awareness and to grow in the pursuit of justice? Yeah, that's a great question. Here's the funny thing. Okay, so a little bit of background on this. I'm a sociologist by undergraduate degree. So I've kind of drawn to social systems and the study of like bigger picture things. What makes the work of allyship really hard are the exact things that we're not great about as an American culture. Mm -hmm. It's not me hating America. I love America. I just want America to do better. Mm -hmm. But our culture is very much an individualist culture. Like, I mean, even our hamburgers, we can get it whatever way we want. Like some, I don't, I don't do fast food. So (laughs) some Someone's just said like their, they, their whole campaign in the nineties was like, have it your way. Right. Was that right. Burger King or something? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Right. Yeah. So like even down to like 
our hamburger and Lord help us, our Facebook pages. Like it's all about individualism and me, right? But one of the biggest pieces of showing up as an ally is something you talked about, which is decentering yourself hmm. and making it not about you. That's huge. That takes practice. I think parenting is great practice. I think marriage mm-hmm. is great practice. It's something that I'm constantly working on because I'm probably the worst person at this that I know of. I'm mm-hmm. very self-centered and very selfish. So even if it's like, well, I don't know a lot of black people to practice this, you can practice not centering yourself in any situation. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so just learning to kind of live that way is a huge a huge thing because when then when other opportunities come along to decenter yourself, it won't feel so painful and you won't resist it so hard. Hmm. Another thing is we're very much, I don't, I don't know how this works in America because we're a country that was built upon rebelliousness, right? With the revolutionary war, <laughs> but we also very much value in this country, like keeping the peace yeah. and, and not rocking the boat and keeping everyone comfortable. Like we've all mastered the nervous laughter right? To kind of cope. And it flies in the face of the awkwardness that is inevitable in this work. Things are going to get awkward. Conversations are going to get so awkward. It's going to be very uncomfortable to bump up against your privilege, to relearn things, to then go back and deal with, you know, if you're willing, the, the root of the problem of people or cultures or institutions that taught you wrong things and say, Hey, this isn't actually right. We've got to do better. Um, That's all uncomfortable and awkward all the way around. There's no escaping that. I guarantee you as someone who is really, really good at avoiding pain for better or worse, there's no way to avoid it. I've tried all the ways I've looked everywhere. It's just a part of this work. Um, But that being said, there is, I think, especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, love covers a multitude of sins and there is room for grace and there is room for heartfelt apologies. And God can do so much in our sinful hearts when we just try (laughs) a little bit. Mm-hmm. to um, show repentance and to have grace with one another. So I'm encouraged by that because God is bigger than any country's culture. With all of this work that I'm doing, like for my personal business and my personal career and my writing, I'm trying to get really clear on my message because it's really easy to come across not clear. These subjects are sensitive, right? And yeah, there's a lot of external pressure to have the exact right words because if you don't, you're going to offend someone or you're going to cancel someone or, you know, you automatically turn ears off if you use the wrong words. So there's a lot of external pressure to have your messaging very clear. So here's what I think the processes are. And I'm sharing this with you. I literally just wrote these notes down in Evernote this morning on my way to the eye doctor. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. The practices of becoming an ally, I think are down to three things that you just do on repeat in a cycle. And they are listen, learn, and love. Hmm. Listen to other people's stories, like listen, listen, not just hear, not just the physiological things of your ears giving you sound. You listen with your, your ears and your eyes and your heart. Right. And then you learn consistently. I, (laughs) I don't know where to send my official letter of complaint that we feel like as soon as you're finished with school in this country, you're done learning and you know all the things. I don't know if knowing all the things starts when you become a middle schooler. It feels like (laughs) it at our house right now. (laughs) But learning is a lifelong pursuit. And I wish that we valued education in a way that reflected that because that's Mm. a real life thing. So just engaging and learning consistently and then making love a verb That is something that Andy Stanley said in his sermons a long time ago on dating. I can't take credit for that, 
but it's so true. It doesn't matter how well you listen or how much you learn if you just hoard all that knowledge and don't put it into practice. And we see that in the Bible. Yep. And so making love a verb is really important. And the love that we see demonstrated in the Bible, which is what I, that is my roots. That is my foundation for everything I do. Not to say that I do it perfectly, but it's the strongest foundation I've got. It's that love costs us something, you know, loving well requires some form of sacrifice and it is a lie that anything else is love. If it's self-seeking in any way, shape or form, that's not love. Hmm. Those are all really good words. Thanks for all of that. I think you've given everyone a jumping off point just to take another little step towards decentering, towards loving others well, towards learning more about what's going on. I've said often that if people learned actual history of how things have come down the pipe in this country, what things are founded on and how they've changed, but not really over time. You know, I think that would go a long way. I think too, I would add a couple of questions, like, cause you brought up history and how important it is. Like you, you said it, I think you just said something that's so key. If people learned history, how it actually happened, right? Mm -hmm. We live in a world where alternative facts are simply a reality. That is a phrase that got introduced to our vocabulary and into our minds that we will never be able to shake alternative facts, fake news. That's really hard for me on an intellectual level (laughs) and a moral level, but I think we have to move forward past that, right? And I think what I would encourage people to do to engage your creative imagination and some creative thinking, some imaginative thinking, and ask yourself the question when something's presented to you, okay, here's the version of history I learned. Here's the version of history that this book is presenting with historical documents. I don't agree with the perspectives that come out of this because I was taught the other version But what if, what if that were true? And then asking God to show you the truth, I think is a really powerful thing. The other thing that I would encourage people to ask, I think this question is so valuable. Who benefits from this narrative? Mm -hmm. If you ask the question, who benefits from this narrative? And the answer is the group of people who have maintained power from the beginning. It's worth considering that maybe there's some bias in that story. Hmm. and then seeking out to see if there are other voices and then and making decisions from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. So this last year, you brought up how tense things have been, how rough they've been. I know how much it's weighed on me with the conversations that I've been having and the things that I've been writing and processing. And I'm white. For my friends and people and families of color, it's through the roof. So how are you and Kelvin and your family taking care of yourself? Because you talked about there is anger. I mean, you you hesitate to call it that, but there's just immense frustration How are you processing that? How are you caring for yourself so that you can continue to do this work? Because I think you recognize, and you've said before, this is lifelong, you Mm -hmm. know, you know that it would be amazing if this, you worked yourself out of a job, (laughs) things move forward that quickly that, you know, you're like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. But you know, if history teaches us anything, we know that this will not be in our lifetime. So how do you care for yourself so that you can sustain what you're doing? Oh man, that's, that's a really good question. Um, And it's been kind of like almost a year in development. One thing that has helped tremendously is we're in counseling, to be incredibly honest with you. We were not able to find a counselor locally that could meet our needs for our family. So Kelvin's employer was very generous and smart 
and said, where do you want us to search? And Kelton said a 35 mile radius around Atlanta ought to do it. <laughs> and so we have a phenomenal counselor out of Atlanta who has helped us come really, really far in a year. So that has been good. Another thing that has been helpful is we've turned to books and reading and learning ourselves. I won't speak for anyone in the house other than myself, but I got too comfortable for too long in the community that we lived in. Hmm. And I am willing to own my part in that for a lot of the hurt that I experienced last year. If I had been working on allyship and if I had been working on things that I felt as passionate as I did in college, I probably would have had better prepared allies around me <laughs> than I did. And um, the hard thing about last year, this is not pointing fingers or blaming anyone. We had allies that did not show up for us in ways that we had hoped they would or expected them to. And even that feels very unfair to say. Mm. Um, and that was, uh, that destroyed us. That was detrimental. That that is dangerous to have allies, people that you love and people that care about you, but they're unprepared to step up when the time comes. And so I think that is what's driving like my work. I'm a very driven work <laughs> type A controlling, make an Excel sheet and make it happen kind of personality. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on a mission. I'm not kind of on a mission. I'm on a mission. I don't ever want people to feel like they are allies and have people of color feel like they have allies And then have these allies unprepared to step up and do something. Because I know that we have allies that wanted to and that did not intend to hurt us, but we were hurt. And so funneling a lot of that energy and hurt into a positive thing has been helpful. We have also done a lot of reading to educate ourselves, which has been really helpful, especially in terms of our faith and our theology. We have turned to the word and gotten a clear understanding It is really hard right now to be a person of faith who is also a person of color attending a predominantly white evangelical institution of faith post-2016 and 2020 elections. And what I mean by that is what I feel should be 100% a Christian issue has been turned into an absolute partisan issue, and that would be racial justice. And it is hard to not feel gaslit by these institutions that you know, we're making a big deal out of things, or we're being too sensitive, or the church should not get involved. And that's just such a a hard line of messaging to cope with. It's been really valuable for us to start to get different voices around us. So we are attending a Black church in Kelvin's hometown, um, his friend of the pastor. So we've been attending there virtually for a while. That has been life-giving I cannot overstate that enough. It's been amazing. And then just reading, um, Kelvin's been reading like African-American readings of Hall. And we've been reading a lot of Esau McCauley, Reading While Black, Jamar Mm -hmm. Tisby's Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism. Getting extra voices in our head that are affirming and reinstilling some hope that we lost last year. That's good. I'm glad to hear you've found places to land Mm -hmm. because this last year has been brutal. Okay, we're getting close to wrapping up here. And before we do, I like to ask some lightning round questions to get to know the real Jamie. All right. (laughs) Before we we finish completely, you know what I'm going to ask you, but I don't know what you're going to say. So (laughs) let's see what happens. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Okay. I was teaching and anyone who has children and who has attended a parent teacher conference as a parent knows that you walk into the classroom and the teacher tells you all about this wonderful child. Who's probably not yours. 
because they <laughs> act differently in the class than at home. And I was at a parent teacher conference as a teacher, hadn't had children yet, wasn't completely aware of this dynamic. And the couple was explaining to me that the reason they felt their daughter was doing far beyond exceeding their expectations as a third grader compared to her other years in school is that their daughter suspected that I was a Christian. Now, this is significant because in the public education environment, you have to be very careful about anything revolving religion. You can't be outwardly, and it wouldn't be in my mind ethical. I taught a Title I school. We had a large Muslim population. And frankly, I don't care what religion my students or their parents are. I love them all to pieces anyway. So right. the fact that she was able to glean from my conversations and my actions, none of which talked about Jesus or faith at all that she thought that I knew Jesus and was a Christian. That was the best compliment I think I could have ever gotten because I'm just not the knock on the door, tell your neighbors about Jesus kind of person. Maybe I should be. That's just not who I am. That still to this day just makes my day. That's the best compliment I've ever gotten. Mm, I love it. What's your favorite movie quote? (laughs) (laughs) Already laughing. Well, my favorite movie quote comes from Remember the Titans which is one of my favorite movies. And the quote is, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. That's Julius. Julius. Yes, (laughs) Julius Campbell. I had the word attitude across my letterman jacket in the place of my name. I have always been accused of having a bad attitude or a good attitude. Like it's, it's very extreme. And so I think attitude is everything and it's super important. And sometimes, yes, I do have a bad attitude, but I really do feel like it has reflected leadership in that time. I'm misunderstood when it comes to that. So attitude reflects leadership. That is one of my favorite quotes of all time, period. That's a really good one. Yeah. We just introduced our kids to that movie a couple of weeks ago and that line got them too. And they're young. It's a very powerful line. And I love that your Letterman jacket said attitude. What was your last Halloween costume? This is the best parenting long con I have pulled off in seven and a half years. Oh, tell us. My kids think that Halloween costumes are regular clothes. We don't go buy Halloween costumes. We dress up as a family in regular clothes that they then wear for the rest of the year. So (laughs) our last costume Mine specifically, I was Mrs. Frizzle and we went as Mrs. Frizzle, the magic bus, the lizard and students from the magic school bus. Brilliant. Wait, someone was the bus? Uh, The wagon. We dressed the wagon up to be the bus. Maya was really little, so she couldn't walk. So we needed to pull her. So she got to be the lizard, which wasn't everyday clothes, but she's young enough that she won't remember she got an actual costume. Everyone else just wore regular clothes. And same (laughs) when we went, when is Doc McStuffins? How long do you think you can continue this? I mean, until I cancel Halloween. Okay. There you go. If you want Halloween, you wear normal clothes. That's how it goes. (laughs) I love that you guys do family costumes. We have done them. I love it. I think it's so much fun. And my children now are eight and 11 and they're like, no mom, we want to do our own thing. And it's a little bit heartbreaking every day. I like your approach. Well, Halloween's canceled then. So I mean, when your mom's a control addict, right? Either, you know, dress up as the greatest showman characters with me or you don't have Halloween. I mean, seriously. And, and, you know, we haven't had that problem yet because we're just a bunch of nerds. And this year we're going as Hamilton. The Skyler Oh, that's sisters. awesome. Yeah. Yes. I don't know which character Kelvin settled on, but I'm going to be, there's a character called, I think she's called the bullet. 
She might. Yeah. Be- oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I know exactly who you're talking about. Oh, so I'm going to be the white bull- vest and the, mm-hmm. yep. I'm going to be the bullet. The girls will be the Skylar sisters and then Kelvin can pick. How are you going to do that with regular clothes? The Skylar sisters? I mean, we have very girly girls, so okay. it's probably going to be long sleeve shirts and girly skirts that match just in the colors. Yep. Yeah. We use our imagination. They're going to be fantastic. I can't wait to see those pictures. Okay. Last question. What's saving your life right now? My marriage. Hmm. because I have this weird space that I walk of whiteness and non-whiteness and not belonging and belonging. The closest thing I have to belonging is to my husband because I was his first choice. He's hilarious. I say this and then it makes it sound like no one else thinks he's funny. He's a quieter guy, but he's hilarious. And the things that he says that are funny cannot be shared appropriately with anybody else. It's just inside jokes and he's just hilarious. Being able to laugh with him, even though this year we were both hurting at the same time, it was a really strange experience this year to both be hurting. We woke up every day in 2020, just thankful that he was home, that he wasn't traveling and that we still liked each other Yeah, <laughs> um, and liked each other a lot. So yes, he's my coping skill for better or worse. And 100% is saving my life right now. He's That's encouraging awesome. and full of grace. It's fun to have someone that is your best friend, but also intellectually into the same things that I am. Like the man lettered in varsity chess. So, I mean, he's... <laughs> That's like the hottest thing about my husband. One of the hottest things. So, know that. so we really connect and he knows how to engage my mind. We're both, we struggle with feelings. That's what it is. We both really struggle with feelings. Our counselor would put her seal of approval on that and underline it a million times in red. We are very cognitive, intellectual thinking people, and it's how we cope. I think it would have been very hard this year to cope if one of us was extremely emotional. Cue Kelvin's laughter now because I was emotional this last year, but like (laughs) only emotional and only cognitive would have been very difficult. He's saving me. He's a good guy. That's great. I am so excited to see what comes next from you, Jamie, as far as all the work. I know you are working so diligently to help support allies and grow us into people who love better. Thank you so much. And thank you for the encouragement. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out, wow, this makes me want to cry to even say this. I'm sorry. I didn't really expect this reaction. You don't have to apologize for having emotions. (laughs) I am trying to figure out how to reach people effectively and in love without the baggage that comes with claiming to be a Christian in America in 2021. Mm. And so with that, I'm trying to figure out because I'm passionate about my faith and I want to post about that, but also recognizing that the American Christian church has caused great harm Mm. and to our shame, let go of an important part of our inheritance to love the world well. And so I find myself navigating a difficult space again between following Jesus and loving people, trying to love people who maybe don't love people who follow Jesus, if that makes sense. Yeah. I really appreciate the heart that you bring to this conversation and that it's more than a conversation to you. This is your life. I can sadly relate to worrying that claiming the name of Jesus will send people running because of what people have done in that name in the last year in particular, but, you know, for a long time. So I can relate to feeling the need to rebuild bridges while still clinging to a very real fate that we continue to hold and walk out. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, my friend. This has been fun and educational, inspiring, all the things. And I just really appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate you taking time out of your crazy homeschool day (laughs) to spend some time with me here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, It's been great to be here. I know that you loved that conversation with Jamie as much as I did. I think both of us were a little surprised that we felt so emotionally there at the end, but these are things that we're all navigating. And I hope that if you're navigating some of those same things too, walking this line of faith and love, that you felt a sense of belonging and that you know you're not alone. I also hope you'll continue the conversation over on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at No Ordinary People Podcast. All the links are in the show notes, anything that Jamie and I talked about, and also how you can follow and get in touch with Jamie. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening today so you don't miss any of the conversations that are coming up with my amazing guests. Today, I'm going to sign off with some words from Morgan Harper Nichols. She's an artist and a poet whom I highly recommend you follow if you're not already. Here's what she says about empathy. Empathy says, let me hold the door for you. I may never have walked a mile in your shoes, but I can see that your soles are worn and your strength is torn under the weight of a story I have never lived before. So let me hold the door for you. After all you've walked through, it's the least I can do. Thanks for listening. Be back next time.